to Acts chapter 19 in your Bibles this morning. Acts chapter 19. You know, I, I do oftentimes take a, a little bit of time, think to, uh, to come up with a creative kind of a title for every week's message, you know, and all. And this week was just Paul in Ephesus. That's it. Uh, was not creative whatsoever, uh, and then, but I thought I'd go ahead and add something. Part one, so that that uh, that should you know soup it up a little bit, you know. But uh, I want to you know I try to get things memorable, you know, that you might be able to kind of really latch on to something. But Paul's going to be in Ephesus for a while, so we're going to begin looking at his uh, his time there in Ephesus. And uh, our text is also our reading this morning, Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. So if you are able to stand with me, would you please stand that we might read God's Word together. Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. Verse 1, let's read together and read aloud. And it happened, while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about twelve in all. Shall we pray? Our Father and our God, we ask for the blessing now, the blessing and anointing of your Holy Spirit. Pour out your Spirit on us, Lord, that we may be filled with your Spirit, that we may desire, Lord, to know and understand your Word today. May you help us, God, to rightly divide your Word, that everything that we learn and everything that we hear will be, Lord God, not only to our encouragement, but to your glory and to your honor and to your praise. We thank you, Father, for this time, this time that we, Lord, can look at your word, read it, study it, and grow from it. May we continue to do so in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen and amen. You all may be seated. As we enter into chapter 19, there are a few things to note of great importance before we proceed. First of all, as, as we rejoin Paul now, he has now started on his third missionary journey. We've covered this the last few weeks. Secondly, this was more of a return trip for Paul for the purpose of exhorting and encouraging the churches that had previously been founded through his ministry. <clears throat> Thirdly, and most obviously, Paul went to no new territory, at least initially. 
His whole purpose was to go to these churches that he had founded and bring a message of strength and encouragement to them. I know that nowadays, you know, if you kind of keep up with Christian groups that go around, music groups that go around having tours here and there, they always have a name for their tour. Well, Paul, I don't think he was at a music group, but he, he certainly had a name for his tour. It was the Be Strong Tour. He was wanting to encourage everybody to be strong in the Lord and in God's Word. And what is significant, though, about all of this is that it does not keep Paul because he just because he wants to bring that encouragement to people, it does not bring Paul or keep Paul, I should say, from declaring the full counsel of God to those who are in need of the full truth about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of His Holy Spirit. In other words, Paul wanted to go and speak to the churches, but if opportunity arose, he would tell people about Jesus. Or if there was some sense or some need to fill gaps in people's understanding, Paul was ready to do that as well. Paul was always ready. He was ready in season and out of season, not only to preach the gospel, but to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ and the Word of God. So traveling en route then to Ephesus through Derba and Lystra and Iconium, places that he had been, even places where he had faced some great struggles, of course, between Derba and Lystra. If you remember that Paul had been stoned for his faith and all. But nonetheless, he comes back, he returns and goes to these churches and, and they're in the region of Phrygia as well. As he's traveling, I'm sure that his thoughts and his prayers were for Aquila and Priscilla and for those whom he had left with the desire, uh, with his desire to return to them again. Because at some point, while he was in Ephesus and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, there were those who wanted him to stay, as we saw in Acts 18, verses 20 and 21. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem which, by the way, he already did. But I will return again to you, God willing, which he will be doing. And then it says he sailed from Ephesus, went away, went to Jerusalem, eventually went back to Antioch, his home base, and he rested or just took time to do whatever was necessary before going on this third journey. But after that time, he did. And when Paul arrived at Ephesus, it is quite possible that he first met with his friends, who probably told him about Apollos, and of course his friends being Aquila and Priscilla, who told him about Apollos, which probably would have brought great joy to the apostle to, to have another co-worker that was on fire for Jesus Christ. And certainly, Apollos was a, a man on fire for Christ once he learned the full understanding of what Jesus Christ had done. In other words, as we said last week, Paul had his maps updated, his GPS was now updated with all the right and proper information. As things went, though, Paul had missed Apollos, who had already departed for Corinth. But now we're told in our text that he, he met a dozen men, twelve men, whose understanding of Christianity was much the same as that of Apollos before he met Priscilla and Aquila. And Paul could tell that something was missing from their witness. Something was missing from their testimony and their understanding of the gospel. 
And we don't really have any indication as we look at Paul's ministry that it was his custom to ask people if they had received the Holy Spirit. So this seems to be unique here in this particular place. But it isn't clear from the text whether these men had any association with the church in Ephesus at all. They could have been passing through the city or else meeting for worship in another area of Ephesus. And it doesn't seem that they were known by the church or even by Aquila and Priscilla. Add to this that they couldn't have been associated with Apollos. Now there are some people who believe that you know they may have been disciples of Apollos, but uh, you know if you look very carefully at what's being said here, how could he have been associated, or how could they have been associated with Apollos? For he certainly would have proclaimed Christ to them after the full knowledge of Jesus was revealed to him. And when we see that he received all of that understanding about Jesus, he had, he had a little time while he was still in Ephesus, as he was ministering there in Ephesus, to have been able to teach them if they were indeed his disciples. So that didn't seem to happen. Then he takes off to Corinth, and then Paul arrives, and then we get to this place where we see that Paul finds these men. So in any case, Paul found them. And that's a very interesting statement to see in our text, that Paul found these twelve men. That Paul found these twelve men. Because in our daily life as believers in Jesus Christ, wherever we are, wherever we go, we are to be witnesses of Jesus Christ. And it isn't so much that people have to find us. Well, there may be some who know what we're all about, but most of the time we find them. We find people who need Jesus. And that's when we need to pray, and that's when we need to ask God to give us wisdom in in bringing that message of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those that we find. Well, it's interesting that uh, things happen not so much just by happenstance, but they happen because God ordains them. So Paul finds them. And then... What transpires is one of the great lessons in understanding salvation. And yes, I mean understanding salvation. Understanding faith and salvation. And I say this realizing that some people believe that these twelve men were, were already saved, while, while others believe otherwise. Some say that because they are called disciples here, that, that they must have come to Christ. But just because people are named disciples doesn't necessarily mean that they're really followers or that they're really brethren in Christ. You could go to the Gospel of, uh, of John, uh, chapter 6. It's a very lengthy Gospel. But near the end, it talks about certain disciples that went away from Jesus never to follow Him again. So just because it says that a person is a disciple or that people are disciples, you know, they certainly have the desire to understand or to know, but it doesn't mean that they are really saved or that they really know or understand what they've been uh, following. So let's consider them. Let's consider the questions that are posed to them by the Apostle Paul and, and, and consider them as helpful in our own examination. In other words, in our own self-examination. For indeed, even Paul would have us to check ourselves. When you look at the scriptures in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 5 and 6, notice what Paul says to us, to the church. He says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. In other words, test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? 
Well, that's an interesting question to ask people who are believers in Jesus Christ or to have us do this examination. Do you know that Christ is in you? Well, this is one of the questions that we have to ask about these men that Paul meets. Examine yourselves as to whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Question, of course, since there was some in, in Corinth that, that questioned the apostleship and even you know, the ministry of, of Paul. He says, hey, well, I trust that you'll know that we are not disqualified. We're saved. We have Christ in us. But the same thing goes with us. We have to examine ourselves to see that we're in the face. So the wording of Paul's first question here in Acts chapter 19 it's, it's often debated due to translation differences and all, but, but it can be simply dealt with if we look at it in, in its context. In Acts 19, let's read verses 1 and 2 again. It says, And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, and finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Now, the question that arises out of Paul's question is this. Was Paul speaking of the Spirit indwelling them when they are saved? Or the empowering with the Holy Spirit that can happen at the time of salvation or later on? What is he talking about? Is he talking about just that indwelling spirit that everyone needs to have when we come to Christ? You know, that the, the, the day that we receive Christ, you know, the spirit uh, comes in us and, and all. And we've studied this before. Or, or, or is he speaking of the empowering with the Holy Spirit that can happen at the time of salvation? Well, I, I'm not sure if that really matters right now because in a few verses, both of those issues are going to be dealt with. Both of the issues of dwelling in and being upon are going to be dealt with. And you see, the question that Paul asks was important because the witness of the Spirit is is the one essential and indispensable proof that a person is truly born again. And let me say that again. The question that Paul asked was important because the witness of the Spirit is the one essential and indispensable proof that a person is truly born again. Take, for example, what Paul teaches in Romans chapter 8, verse 9. In Romans 8 verse 9 he says, But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells where? In you. In you. It's okay, you can speak if I ask you to. (laughs) In you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. So you see the Spirit dwells in you as a believer. But now... In verse 16 of that same chapter, Romans 8, he says this, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So there is that proof, you see, of the indwelling Spirit. That a person is truly born again. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. But the thought then doesn't stay there. Because then Paul will tell the Corinthian church, in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, he says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So we cannot say that Jesus is Lord. That is the witness that we are to give of our salvation. 
We can't say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So there has to be then the entrance of the Spirit in us to be able to say and to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So there is then that inward work of the Spirit in our lives. But then Paul goes on to the Ephesian church and he says to them in Ephesians 1 verse 3, In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, notice, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. So the necessity of having the Spirit in your life as a Christian and the witness of the Spirit is that essential proof that a person is truly born again. So Paul had recognized something that was missing in the lives of these 12 men. And remember that people, remember this folks, that people can profess to believe in Jesus Christ and have no clue whatsoever about His nature and His character simply because they don't know Him personally. People can profess to believe in Christ and have no clue about Jesus because they don't know Him personally. Not having an intimate and loving relationship with Jesus Christ. There are a lot of people who know about Jesus. But that's not the issue here. And we know as believers in Jesus Christ that we need to have a relationship with Christ. He already knows us. We need to know Him. We need to have fellowship and communion with Him. Not as if He's some image on a wall, on a picture. But as somebody who says, I will be with you and I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'm not going to leave you comfortless. I'm going to send my spirit. But in sending his spirit, what do we have? We have the presence of Christ in us. And so this, of course, means that there will be no true joy. There will be no true joy. There will be no true love evident in their lives. Worship will be dry at best and non-existent at worst. And so the response of these 12 men was quite telling. The response of these men was quite telling. What did they say? We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Now, that answer was so insightful for it revealed the vagueness and the uncertainty of their faith. Because since they were disciples of John the Baptist, as we're finding out in our text, since they were disciples of John the Baptist, they actually would have heard a lot about the Holy Spirit. So we have to ask, are they lying? Are they dumb? Are they, are, have, they, have they missed something? Or are what, they, are what they are saying here something that we're not getting fully in the, in the English uh, translation here? We've not so much as heard whether there is a Spirit. So, one of, the, one of John's key uh, teachings, John the Baptist, one of John the Baptist's key teachings was that the promised Messiah would baptize his followers with the Holy Spirit. So they would have heard about the Holy Spirit had they been followers of John. Let's look at John for just a moment in Matthew chapter 3, verse 11. It says, these are the words of John himself when he says at the Jordan, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now let me add one other thing. If these men were Jewish, they also would have known about the Holy Spirit. Because the Old Testament speaks of the Spirit of God. 
So they would have known about it. So what these men obviously meant then, when they said, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit, what these men meant was that they had not heard whether the Holy Spirit had been given as promised. Which, con- which coincides grammatically with a statement made in John chapter 7 about something that Jesus was teaching. And in John chapter 7 verse 39, I want you to notice what it says. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. Notice, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given. Yeah, thank you. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given. But I want you to notice something, and, and, and you'll see it up here, and if you, you, know, if you have a New King James, I believe in the King James as well, the word given is not, it's written in italics, which means that in the Greek it is, it is not there, and, and the word given is, is, is placed there to, uh, to, to bring strength to the statement that was being made. In other words, the Holy Spirit was not yet. But we understand that the Spirit was to be given. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit of fire. It was to be given. Because Jesus was not yet glorified, it was not yet given, you see. So then it coincides with this thought that when they said we've not so much as heard whether there is a Spirit, is, it, is the Spirit yet? It has not been given. It has not come. At this point, Paul distinguished them. As he goes on to speak to these men, he distinguishes between the baptism of John and the baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. And you'll notice there in verses 3 and 4, he said to them, Into what then were you baptized? So they said, Into John's baptism. And then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. Now Paul points out to these disciples that John's baptism was one of repentance, not necessarily of faith unto salvation. John's baptism, in other words, pointed to Jesus, but did not take men there itself. It pointed to Jesus, but it didn't take them there itself. Going back to Matthew 3 for just a moment. And again, now looking at, at, uh, at John the Baptist's ministry in verses 1 through 6. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And then... Uh, Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. And you think, all of the people started coming and he started preaching the kingdom of God and and preaching repentance and confessing of sin and and people were getting baptized. Who else was coming? We know that the scribes, the Pharisees were following. They were coming to the extent that even John had to call them... uh, you know, call them out, you know, brood of vipers or whatever. You know, he, he points them out as people that were, you know, that really needed to repent of their sins as well. But this baptism, to understand it, was one of repentance from sins to prepare for the coming of Messiah. That is all these men knew, you see. These men that Paul found in Ephesus. 
that of a, of a baptism of repentance from sins to prepare for the coming of Messiah. And knowing this, we'd have to say that these men then were not saved. And yet they were waiting for the coming of Messiah. They didn't have complete information about what had happened after all of that that John had gone through. Not knowing that he had already come. In other words, not knowing that even Jesus had already come and paid in full the penalty for their sins. They had only come so far as, as, as Apollos had come in his knowledge of, of uh, spiritual things, especially of, of Jesus. So they were what we might call then Old Testament saints. By the way, when you consider John the Baptist, and, and this is a good question for you all if you like to do Bible trivia or whatever, but, but John the Baptist was really the last of the Old Testament prophets. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets whose ministry was completely to turn everybody's eyes to the, to the Lord Jesus Christ. But he was the one who was actually going to see Jesus. All the other prophets never saw Jesus, but he did. As a matter of fact, he was a relative. They were cousins. But he had never seen Jesus. They were born six months apart, but he had never seen his cousin. Until one day, and we see that in the Gospel of John, that when he saw Jesus, John immediately said, Behold the Lamb of God. Behold him who taketh away the sins of the world. Behold him. Behold the Messiah. Behold Jesus. So, out of that comes anyone who comes up to that level, believing, disciples as it were, yet still Old Testament saints, because the Spirit of God had not indwelt them, for they had not received Jesus yet. You see, John, as I said before, was a prophet who ministered under what we call the Old Dispensation. In other words, the Old Covenant was still what he was promoting, except for the fact that he was pointing to Jesus Christ. What we have to understand is the Old Covenant was ended, but not by John at the Jordan. The Old Covenant was ended, but not by John at the Jordan. It was ended by Jesus Christ at Calvary. That's where the Old Covenant ended. When Jesus took upon Himself the sins of the world, when Jesus was hung on that cross, when Jesus bled and, 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 and bled fully and completely for the sins of man, for the remission of our sins, when Jesus said, it is finished, that's what was finished. The old covenant was ended. And the new covenant of Christ's body and Christ's blood was now fulfilling the law. And so Paul declares to them Jesus' atoning death. And we have to understand that Paul is not going to leave out any, he's not going to leave out any information here that these people need to know. Just like Aquila and Priscilla did not leave out any information that Apollos needed to know. Everything that Paul had probably taught Aquila and Priscilla, they taught to Apollos. Which is something that should teach us. That, you know, as we're learning the Word of God, we need to start teaching others in our family, in our homes, in our jobs, wherever it is. People who have questions about the things of the Word of God. We're learning it. Let's take it. Let's, let's all begin to be used of the Lord in bringing the message of hope to this world. 
So Paul declares to them, Jesus' atoning death, Jesus' glorious resurrection. They may not have, they may not have known anything about this. But what is the outcome of it all? Just as it was with Apollos, the outcome was the same with these men. They were indeed saved. They were indeed now filled with the understanding that they could respond to by faith, by the Spirit that would now indwelt them as they made that commitment of faith to Christ. I want you to consider verse 5 here. Now in Acts 19. When they heard this, in other words, remember what the Bible says in Romans chapter 10. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Faith cometh by hearing. When they heard this, Paul didn't show them just little pictures. It wasn't just a matter of of showing them a video. Hey guys, sit down, let me show you a video. Or let's, let's, you know, hear this, you know, let's hear this tape or whatever. No, hear the word. They heard the word of God. Why? Because faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So when they heard this, and I'm sure that Paul is going to give them the full counsel of God and of Christ, when they heard this, what's the response? They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. They were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And just to bring you up to date with what we taught back in Acts chapter 2, which was a long, long time ago, But when we dealt with the issue of baptism in the name of Jesus, we need to remember something. That means it was they were to be baptized in the authority that Jesus gave to baptize, which is when you read Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, where it says that you are to baptize in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. That is baptizing in the authority or in the name of Jesus. So that's how they were baptized. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So now what has happened to these 12 men? Now their maps are updated. Now their GPS has all the full information that they needed to have about Jesus Christ. And they not only were immersed in water, because baptism was an immersion in water. It was a symbol. It was an outward symbol of an inward work. And this is why we as Christians ought to be baptized when we come to know Christ. If you haven't been, well, you know, we're going to let the weather kind of warm up a little, then we'll, we'll have a baptism somewhere. But we want you to be baptized. But nonetheless, you know, when, when you're put into the water, it's, it's symbolic. Symbolic of our death. It is symbolic of sins being put away. It's symbolic of Jesus who died for our sins being put in the ground. The only difference is we are pulled out of the water. Thank God for that. We don't leave you in the water. And we don't leave you, you know, we don't count uh, seconds, you know, because we figure your sins are pretty bad. You need to stay in 10 seconds. That's not what we do. We put you in and we put you out because it's all symbolic. You know, we, we're, we, we're, we're dead to sin and dead to ourselves and we are raised in newness of life in Jesus Christ. That's symbolic of, of what Christ has already done, you see, already in these men's lives. So they were immersed in water, but more importantly, they immersed their lives into Jesus Christ. They immersed their lives into Christ. They had received, you see, the rest of the story and were born again. Now indwelled by the Spirit of God, which prompted Paul, or whoever else may have been with Paul, because we know Paul didn't baptize too many people. But I figure since he didn't know of 12 men's names, he didn't have to say who they were, so he probably baptized them. I don't know. But whether he did it or somebody else was with Paul, they baptized those men in water. 
But this is a lesson, you see, a lesson that teaches us about faith and about salvation. Because you see, belief, belief can be incomplete. Belief can be incomplete. Consider how many people have changed their lives. And they, maybe now they, they, they may be living moral lives. They just said, I don't want to live that way anymore, but I'm going to, I'm going to make a change. They're going to say, I, I, I've made some resolutions for this new year, and I'm going to change my life, and I'm, going to, I'm not going to drink anymore, I'm not going to smoke anymore, I'm not going to do this anymore, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm just going to try to live a little bit more morally in my life. You know, consider how many people have changed their lives that way. I mean, now be living somewhat moral lives, but have still not accepted the truth of God's Son. They haven't accepted the truth of His coming to this earth. They haven't accepted the truth of His securing our righteousness by living a sinless life. They haven't accepted the truth of His dying for our sins. They haven't accepted the truth of His arising from the dead. I hope you have. I hope you have. But we cannot change ourselves. Because salvation necessitates full belief. Believing the truth that Jesus is the Son of God in the fullest sense of salvation. But salvation also necessitates a decision. Salvation also necessitates a decision that we can say with confidence what took place even here. That these twelve men chose to accept the truth about Jesus Christ. And everything that Paul taught them. They chose to accept the truth about Jesus Christ. And while many others hardened their hearts toward Paul's message, whether it was in Ephesus or in Corinth or in Thessalonica or wherever Paul had been, while many others hardened their hearts toward Paul's message, these men, having been prepared for such a time as this by the Holy Spirit, received the truth with gladness. And the Spirit was no longer just alongside of them, but was now in them. And let me say that that is one of the works of the Holy Spirit, is to come alongside of us. But why? He came alongside of them, and now He's in them. This experience is clearly seen, by the way, in the Gospel of John. I want you to listen to the words of Jesus as He says to His disciples in John 14, Verses 16 and 17, he says, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper or comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, that he may abide with you, with you, notice, forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But notice this, but you know him, for he dwells with you, and will be in you. I want you to notice the tenses that are used. For he dwells with you, present tense. And will be in you, future tense. And this is significant. Because in these prepositions that are used here, with you, in you, it gives us the sense of the fullness of the understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. First of all, with you. In the Greek, the word with there is the word para. As a matter of fact, that's part of the name of the Holy Spirit in the Greek, the paraclete or the paracletus. A paraclete is one who comes alongside. You might consider the use of the word para in, in things like a para church organization. 
there is the church, but then there are certain organizations uh, that are risen to uh, do various types of ministry. Gospel for Asia is a parachurch organization. Those of you who support Gospel for Asia understand that. It comes alongside of the church to help the church in ministering in particular ways. Parachurch organization. We've oftentimes, and for those of you that are into the military thought, paramilitary organizations or paramilitary groups that come alongside what we know as the military, but it's a separate group alongside. So it just means to come alongside. So it says with you, and then it says also in you. And the, the slide was up there earlier. It's, 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 uh, en is, is the word in the Greek. Para is the word in the Greek. But en is the word for in, in you. First of all, the Holy Spirit is with us. The Holy Spirit comes alongside of us. The main reason, though, is to draw us to Christ. But He's not in us yet. As a matter of fact, if you go back and remember your own coming to the Lord Jesus Christ out of the darkness into His light, could have never been done unless the Holy Spirit had come alongside of us to do what? To convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. As Jesus taught in the Gospel of John as well. To convict us of sin. And by the way, the word convict is also, can, can also be used uh, in this manner, to convince us of sin. We have to be convinced that we're sinners. In many, in many ways, we have to be convinced that we're a sinner. A lot of people don't think that, I don't, you know, everybody's a sinner. So, I mean, you know, some, even, some people even boast about it, you know. But we have to be convinced that our sin is an action against God that will be judged unless God rescues us. So the Spirit comes alongside of us to draw us to Christ. Now, once we receive the Lord and are saved, the Holy Spirit comes in to dwell with us. It comes in to dwell with us now, not so much just alongside, but in us. But we're, He's in us that we might, as, as, as we read earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, say that Jesus Christ is Lord through the Holy Spirit. So He's come alongside. We confess Again, Romans chapter 10. If we confess with our heart the Lord Jesus and believe with our mouth, or confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe with our heart that He is risen from the dead, then we'll be saved. That because of the Holy Spirit coming in. You see, salvation is a work of God from beginning to end. He comes alongside, He convicts, He comes in, gives us faith, gives us the words. Now we are confessing. And there's a tremendous difference, folks. You have to understand there's a tremendous difference between professing and confessing. We've talked about professors. We'll talk about it in just a moment, a little bit more. But we're not to just be professors. We're to be confessors of Jesus. But I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that in a moment. So this is where these men were. And this is where we are now. If we truly believe in the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit was with them, drew them to Jesus, and the Holy Spirit came in them. So that's covering two prepositions here and two parts of the work of the Holy Spirit. But there is still one more Greek preposition that is used of the Holy Spirit and that is found in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. 
used by Jesus himself when he speaks to his disciples before his, his ascension into heaven. Acts 1 verse 8, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now underline, underline that, upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So there is now that third experience, which is the upon experience, the epi in the Greek experience. The Holy Spirit will come upon us and empower us for service. And this is what we now see in the lives of these twelve men. Because in verse 6 of our text it says, And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. So now we have seen all of these experiences in these twelve men in just a short time. The Holy Spirit had come alongside of them. As they hear the gospel, they respond. The Holy Spirit is in them. Evidently confessing Christ so that they are baptized now. And I'm sure they're not going to get, try to get one by Paul. So I'm sure now they are truly convinced that they are believers in Jesus Christ. But now he lays hands on them. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. And then it says that they spoke with tongues and prophesied, which were the evidences at that time. And by the way, this is the last time speaking in tongues is mentioned here in the book of Acts. But it does speak of that witness and evidence of the Holy Spirit in these men. And of course, verse 7 says that there were 12, or about 12 in all. Well, about 12, I, you know, there's just 12. Well, that doesn't matter. But nonetheless, what matters is what Paul did and what the Holy Spirit did when he came upon them to do what? To empower them. Based upon what Jesus said when he said, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So, now... I want you to go back to the Gospel of Mark for just a moment. Well, maybe not go back, but let's go there. We haven't gone there yet, but let's go. Mark chapter 1. Because Mark records in his Gospel the words of John the Baptist. And I know that we've already read the words of John the Baptist in the Gospel of Matthew, but I want you to look at what he says here. Mark chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John uh, the Baptist was already preaching about the coming of Messiah and that this is what Messiah was going to do, not only as Jesus did it himself to the 120 at Pentecost, but even after this, if you remember now, Paul lays his hands on them and the Holy Spirit did come upon them. So he was speaking of Jesus baptizing believers with the Holy Spirit, empowering them to move the gospel message forward. And we see that manifested in the lives of these believers. And that same power is for us today. That same power is for us today. It isn't something that died out with the apostles. It isn't something that all of a sudden just doesn't happen anymore. That, well, we have the Spirit in us. But no, Jesus said, but I'm going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit so that He comes upon you and empowers you to be witnesses for me in Jerusalem and in Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. Folks, the Holy Spirit doesn't change. If the Holy Spirit doesn't change, if God the Father doesn't change, if Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, then the Holy Spirit and His work doesn't change. And we need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to take the gospel message forward. 
And I want to kind of emphasize it in that way. We don't want to be static or still with these things that God has given us to take into the whole world. It isn't for us. By the way, let me tell you this. It isn't for us to toot our whistle, to blow our horn, to show off anything that we have. It isn't for us to do anything but to drive the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ forward. And we need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to do that. And I, and I hate to say, but some people like to toot their own horn. I, we're not here to toot our horn. It's Jesus that needs to be honored and glorified. It's Jesus that needs to be praised. It's Jesus that needs to be exalted. It's Jesus that needs to be preached. It's the things that Jesus has done that need to be heard. Heard. So you've got to speak the gospel. And you need the, the power of the Holy Spirit. The dunamis power of the Holy Spirit. To move the message of the gospel of Christ forward. Paul had seen in these men that something was indeed missing when he first met them. The lack of power in their lives. The fact that their lives did not manifest love, joy, and peace. There was something that he saw that wasn't there. They were disciples, but they had only come so far in their walk. They had only come so far in their knowledge. And Paul said... We need to talk. We need to update your maps. We need to update the information of your GPS. The question we are to ask ourselves is this. Do we notice a lack of power in our own lives? Now let's consider this question. Do we, lack a, do we notice a lack of power in our own lives? Charles Spurgeon puts the questions this way. He says, Have you then received the Spirit since you believed? Beloved, are you now receiving the Spirit? Are you living under His divine influence? Are you filled with His power? Put the question personally. I am afraid some professors will have to admit that they hardly know whether there be any Holy Ghost And others will have to confess that though they have enjoyed a little of His saving work, yet they do not know much of His ennobling and sanctifying influence. Folks, that ought not to be for us. We ought not to know just a little of His saving work. We ought to know the fullness of His saving work. We ought not to know just a little bit of His divine influence. We are to be influenced divinely. By the power of God and by His Spirit. But it is important to remember that God does not want us to have a superficial relationship with Him. He does not want us to have a superficial relationship. You all know what that means. Kind of just on the surface. Just, you know, kind of insincere, you know, just on the outside, but nothing on the inside changed. It is the inside of our lives that needs to be changed. And when it is changed, what a change truly takes place. Because you see, God wants us to go deeper with Him. He wants us to go deeper with Him and receive all that He has for us. And I can tell you this, if you read God's Word, He has a lot for us. 
God has provided all of this stuff. What are we doing with what God has provided? We need to believe and then we need to receive. We can ask, Lord Jesus, fill me. Fill me daily. Fill me every day. Fill me to overflowing. Fill me with your wisdom. Fill me with your understanding. Lord, just fill me with your spirit. Just let your spirit come upon me. Just a constant outpouring of your spirit. And it's necessary, mainly because as human beings, we are still, what do I've oftentimes said, we're, we're just leaky vessels, cracked pots. Every day we leak a little bit, we need to be filled again. And every day then we look for those places to kind of, you know, fill up those, those cracks so that we can be a little bit more of a... Of a containable vessel of the things that God has given us. But we need to go deeper. I know that I sometimes drive this into the ground sometimes, but you know, we, we, we need to keep ourselves in the, in the love of Christ. And we need to keep ourselves in prayer and in the study of God's Word. And we need to keep ourselves in the fellowship of the Spirit and the fellowship in the church. We just know people and get to, you know, get open up a little bit, you know, to the love of Christ with others. So much that we need to do. That every time we do those things, God begins to expand the borders of our ministry. He expands the borders of our faith. Expands the borders of our life. Expands the borders of our testimony. But it doesn't happen if we remain superficial. And those men, whether they were sincere or not, and I would have to say that they were sincere about their discipleship as as far as John the, uh, the Baptist was concerned. But as we learned about Apollos last week, it wasn't enough. Because the truth hadn't been fully received. Because it hadn't been fully given. And until Aquila and Priscilla spoke to Apollos and Paul spoke to these 12 men. They would have been without the light of the glory of Christ. So none of us should be without the light of the glory of Christ in our lives. Because we have the full counsel of God. Everything we need to know is in this book. We have the full counsel of God. And this is why we study the the, the Word of God here. So that you will be filled. And that you'll understand what God is wanting to do in your life. Because indeed, the Lord is coming. We need to be ready. And we need to make others ready. We need to be a reflection of the love of Christ, of the power of God through the Holy Spirit, But in a humble way, we're not here to show off. We're here to show him off. We're here to show Jesus Christ off. We're here to show what he has done to save men from their sins. And so begins the ministry of Paul once again in Ephesus. Shall we pray?